If you have God's Word, stand to your feet for the reading of Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This is God's word. Have you ever looked up and realized that you were a bandwagon sports fan? Have you ever looked up and realized that you were a bandwagon sports fan? If you have never heard the term, a bandwagon sports fan shows no past loyalty to a team, but then suddenly decides to become a fan because a player or a team has taken the world by storm. That might look like someone in this congregation who was once wearing maroon or blue, or even crimson, now hopping on the Georgia bandwagon so they might actually win a national championship this year. All of us have probably done this at one point in our lives. Some of us became massive Iowa fans when Caitlin Clark took the world by storm. Others of us in the early 2000s, we wore red shirts and black pants on Sunday because Tiger Woods was winning every tournament imaginable. And for those that are alive in the early 90s, what kind of jersey did we have? We had a Michael Jordan jersey, right? All of us did. Why? Because we loved to tune into the Bulls to watch the greatness of MJ. If you call yourself a sports fan, you've inevitably been swept up in this bandwagon effect. But my question is why? Why is it inevitable that this might happen to us? Well, I think the answer is simple. Because we love the way it makes us feel. One psychologist from American University spoke about this feeling. When the hormones in your brain rise because of this excitement, the brain gets bathed in this and there's this pleasure effect. We hop on bandwagons simply because of the thrill and sensation we can get out of that moment. And when the ride is over, 
we move on to the next player or the next team that will reproduce that same effect. A bandwagon fan is always enthusiastic about their team, yet only briefly until the next wave comes and takes them away. Are there any Chiefs fans in the congregation? My point exactly. (laughs) Christ Fellowship, in one sense, we see the bandwagon effect happening in our text this morning. Large crowds from over 100 miles away were traveling to witness this man from Nazareth doing many miraculous things. The kingdom of God was breaking into the world, and people everywhere wanted to experience what they heard so much about. Mark will tell us that Jesus was so famous that he had to create an evacuation plan lest the crowds crush him. However, the crowds were only enthusiastic about what they could get from Jesus, not Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, we see two very different groups of people. The large crowds who are fascinated by Jesus and the disciples that follow Jesus. What's the difference between the two? Well, Mark will show us in this very text. I have two points coming from our text this morning. The first point is spectators are fascinated by Jesus. Spectators are fascinated by Jesus. And citizens are called by Jesus. Spectators are fascinated by Jesus. And citizens are called by Jesus. So in my last three sermons we've seen some heavy opposition from Israel's religious elite. The conflict came to a climax when Jesus challenged their man-made religious systems, their Sabbath, and their self-righteousness. As we witnessed last week, it did not look good for Jesus. We're only in Mark chapter 3, and the Pharisees left to join up with the Herodians to plot his assassination. However, Mark takes a sharp turn in our text this morning to remind the readers of Jesus' popularity. Although the religious elite might have despised Jesus, the large crowds, they couldn't get enough of him. However, their enthusiasm for Jesus, it was short-lived. Like a bandwagon sports fan, their fascination with him wouldn't last To our first point, spectators are fascinated by Jesus. Look with me at verses 7 through 8. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. When August of this past year, Taylor Swift quickly walked into a restaurant at the Jersey Shore in the afternoon to attend a rehearsal dinner for her producer. When she left the restaurant, if you haven't seen this video, there's thousands of people that are lining up on the streets. It was said that a man paid $500 to another man so his daughter could stand on her truck just to see Taylor Swift. If you see the video, you see grown men and women tearing up as she walked out, and the screams of the young girls is almost deafening. Everyone wanted to get a glimpse of arguably the most famous person in the world. In some senses, this is very much what we have in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. In this section, Mark shows us the impact of Jesus' ministry. 
as Jesus attempts to withdraw from the chaos and the commotion, he really can't. It's impossible due to his fame. Like Taylor Swift in Jersey Shore, when people get word that Jesus shows up in their town, multitudes of people come from all over the map to get a glimpse of him. In this one passage, we see Jesus allude to the large crowds four different times. We see it twice in verse 7, once in verse 8, and we also see it in verse 9. It's like he's emphasizing over and over that these massive mobs are clamoring to touch Jesus. Mark highlights not only the number of people, but also where the people are coming from. It's honestly amazing to think about this because if you remember up to this point, Jesus' ministry has just been confined to Galilee. However, people from everywhere are traveling to see Jesus. They're coming from the south, that is Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea. They're coming from the east beyond the Jordan, and they're coming from the north, from Tyre and Sidon. Let me help clarify this context so you can kind of get a grasp of where people are coming from. It'd be like if Jesus showed up in Williamsburg and people in the outer banks made the trip to come see Jesus. People also in Richmond made the trip and people in Petersburg as well. And remember, they were not driving cars. They were on foot walking these long distances to see Jesus. Although the distance traveled was impressive, even more impressive was the ethnic diversity of the crowd. Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, they were mostly Jewish. Idumea and beyond the Jordan, they were probably mixed. But Tyre and Sidon, they were almost entirely Gentile regions. Isaiah 49.6 prophesies about this very moment. I love this. It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Different ethnicities, cultures, and backgrounds were all vying to see Jesus. And Mark is showing us in this very passage that the gospel is for everyone. Well, Christ Fellowship, as I look across our congregation, I'm so thankful for our generational diversity. I think we have something very unique going on at Christ Fellowship. I mean, think about this for a moment. Where do you see a place where older couples like Amy and Carrie Taylor inviting college students and young adults to their house on a Friday night to play board games? I mean, to be honest, you really don't. It's the very gospel of Jesus Christ that brings different generations together. Nevertheless, as I look across our congregation, I do long for us to have more ethnic diversity. Some of you might be asking, Bryce, why is that? Why do you want more ethnic diversity? Well, friends, ethnic diversity is also a glorious witness to the gospel. Like our generational diversity, it shines a spotlight on the glorious gospel. It's only possible through Jesus to bring diverse cultures and backgrounds together to worship the Lord and to unite in the Great Commission. As I walk in places like Target, CW, and Publix, I'm reminded 
that Williamsburg does have a lot of diversity. And I pray that our church will be a place that shows that the gospel is for everybody. Will you join me in praying that the Lord will make our congregation more diverse in 2024? If you will, you're simply pleading that the Lord will make our gospel witness even brighter. If you pray that prayer, you're just asking that the Lord will make our gospel witness even brighter. That is a worthy prayer to pray. Well, if you glance at the end of verse 8, we get a glimpse of why these large crowds were coming to see Jesus. The large crowds came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Now, on the surface, if you think about it, this might seem like an incredibly encouraging verse. Diverse people from diverse places are walking very long distances to see Jesus. I mean, what more could you ask for? Nevertheless, motives matter. These large crowds were not coming for Jesus' message, but these large crowds were coming for his miracles. Look with me at verses 9 through 10. Mark writes this. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowds wouldn't crush him since he had healed many. All who had diseases were pressing towards him to touch him. Notice their fascination with healing. These large crowds want the benefit that Jesus can give them, but the text says nothing of them actually committing to follow Jesus. The text says nothing about their contrition of sin or their trust in Christ. We have a people who are fascinated with miracles rather than the message, with healings rather than holiness. Mark shows us that spectators are fascinated by what Jesus can do for them not what they can do for Jesus. Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd love to speak to you just for a moment about this scene. You have a group of people who, in one sense, are amazingly devoted to Jesus. They devoted their time to Jesus as they presumably walked a long way to see him. They devoted their energy to Jesus as they were pressing through the crowds to try to touch him. And they also devoted their focus to Jesus as they watched with anticipation to see what he would do next. This whole scene right here screams of people who wanted Jesus, but their devotion to Jesus, please hear me, it was only for their own benefit. It was a false piety for their own profit. There wasn't, their motivation wasn't how they could glorify the Lord, but what they could gain from Jesus. Friend, I wonder if this is your incentive for coming to church this very morning. You see Jesus as somebody that just added on to your life that might help you right now, but when something better comes along, well, then you toss him out of the way and you hop on that wave. Now, I want to be totally upfront with you. The one big glaring problem about your approach is that Jesus is not a life coach to be sought out for help. He's the Lord of the universe for you to surrender your life to. And that's our plea for you this morning. That you would see Jesus for who he is, the very son of God. And you would know that he gave his very life for you. He died on a cross that you might be saved. And that if you repent and believe, you will find life in his name. 
We don't want you to look to Jesus so that you might have a better life. We want you to look to Jesus that you might worship the creator of the universe. That is our hope for you. Well, Christ Fellowship, I want to give us one more application that might stir us to pray for our church. If you notice at the end of verse 8, the large crowds came to him because what? Because they heard about everything he was doing. Jesus' actions led them to travel many miles to investigate this man who had helped so many people. Now, they came for selfish reasons, but please hear me. They were drawn to Jesus because of Jesus' kindness, his compassion, and his love. They would have never come to Jesus. They would have never pressed in towards him if he would have never shown himself to be sympathetic to the broken and outcast. Christ Fellowship, another prayer that I have for our church as we close out this year is that our kindness, compassion, and love towards our community would draw people to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure what that looks like, but I do pray that large crowds would be drawn to Christ Fellowship because they hear about what we're doing in the community. We want people to be attracted to Christ by our works and pierced by Christ through our words. Attracted to Christ by our works and pierced by Christ through our words. I pray that our impact on our surrounding community will bring people to investigate this glorious Savior who has compassion for sinners. And I want to say that we are doing this in a couple weeks with the live nativity. This whole thing is for our community. So let's all be praying that the Lord would use this to bring many people to saving faith and that our love for them would be shown and our actions towards the community would adorn the gospel. Well, I want to say one more thing about verse 9 before we move into verse 11. I'm sure that every single person in this room has seen this video. I don't even think I have to tell you about it. But there's this famous video of Justin Bieber at 16 years old in Glendale, Arizona. And he's riding this Segway. And as he's riding this Segway, he's doing it outside of the arena about 30 minutes before he's about to go on stage and sing. And people get word that he's outside of the arena, a.k.a. teen girls get word of it, and they start flocking to him. It's like hundreds of people are chasing him, and then they finally catch up to him, and they circle him. And as you watch this video, you think that he's about to get crushed unless his security guards don't step in to save him. In many ways, that's the scene that we have in verse 9. Jesus is being pressed so much that he's forced to create an escape plan lest he gets crushed by the crowds. And I want to remind you quickly that Jesus created an escape plan here, but when similar crowds were screaming, crucify, crucify, crucify later down the road, there was no escape plan to be found. He could have easily planned an escape from the brutal Romans. He could have used another wooden boat. He could have used 10,000 legions of angels to bring him to safety. Yet in choosing to get crushed on that wooden cross, it was the very means that's transported him to heaven. And it was the very means that brings every single person in this room salvation. I just want to say praise God that Jesus did not have an escape plan on that day. Because if he did, 
none of us would be saved. When the words of John MacArthur, the crowds fall upon him, but the demons fall before him. In verses 11 through 12, Mark emphasizes that the inferior bows before the superior. The demons cannot help but proclaim Jesus' true identity. Look with me at this in verses 11 through 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. So my question is, why did the demons cry out like this? And why did Jesus silence them? The demons saw what everyone was blind to, that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. They were proclaiming his divinity. But why the silence? Why wouldn't Jesus welcome this? Why would Jesus not want his divine character announced before everyone, no matter who was proclaiming it? Well, it's clear that the demons were not confessing in faith, but they were crying out in despair. They were certainly antagonistic to Jesus and his ministry, and maybe they thought, this is just a guess, in associating with Jesus and crying out the Son of God, well, then that might start to ruin his ministry. All press is good press unless it comes from the demons. Well, nevertheless, the demons clearly showed that their words and actions, nevertheless, the demons clearly showed their words and actions um, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the eternal Son sent from the Father to inaugurate a new and better covenant. What the demons confessed in hopelessness will be understood by Jesus' disciples after the cross and resurrection. And it's what must be understood by all who come to saving faith in Christ. Well, now the large crowds, they were fascinated by what Jesus was doing. But this fascination didn't last. They would soon depart from him. However, the disciples were different. They remained with Jesus his entire ministry. So we must ask the question, what's the difference between the large crowds and the disciples? Why did the large crowds check out, yet the disciples stayed? Well, verse 13 gives us that very answer. To our last point, citizens are called by Jesus. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. First, we need to notice where Jesus goes to call his disciples. He ascends a what? Somebody help me. He ascends a mountain. What's significant about a mountain? When the Old Testament, mountains are closely associated with God's authority, presence, and revelation. It's an intersection between heaven and earth where God meets with man. When Jesus climbing a mountain, we're called to think back of Moses ascending Mount Sinai. And that was a very significant time in the life of Israel. Why? Because it's where they received the old covenant. And now Jesus' ascent to the top of this mountain is no less significant for God's people. Look at me. It's even more significant. In Jesus calling these 12 men, we witness the church's very conception. 
Well, I want to go back to our question concerning the difference between the large crowds and the apostles. What was Jesus' reasoning for calling these 12 men to himself? Why these 12 men specifically? Well, to ask another way, what separates a spectator of the kingdom from a citizen of the kingdom? Well, Christ Fellowship, again, the answer is straightforward. It is verse 13. Jesus called who? Jesus called those he desired. The disciples did not decide to follow Jesus, nor were they chosen for any attributes inherent to them. It wasn't, that the, it wasn't the disciples' eagerness, their talent, or influence that set them apart from the rest. It wasn't their seminary degree. It wasn't their speaking ability or debating skills that distinguished them from others. It certainly wasn't their holiness, their fear of God, or association with the synagogue that caused them to make the cut. Jesus calling these disciples had nothing to do with what the disciples had done and everything to do with what Jesus wanted. Jesus summoned those he desired. Well, Christ Fellowship, has it ever occurred to you that Jesus called you to himself because he desires you? He desired to have you in his kingdom use you for his glory, and be with you for all eternity. When God chose you, it was because he wanted you. I mean, think about this. How sad would it be if one of your kids came up to you and said this? They said, hey, mom and dad, I know I didn't do my best on my math test or at my baseball game, but next time, I'm going to prove that I'm the son you've always wanted. I mean, you would be heartbroken by that comment because your desire for them is not contingent upon their performance. And so Christ Fellowship, I want to say this to you. We must stop thinking that God's desire for us is based on our performance. Why did he call you to himself? Why did he rescue you from the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of his son? Why did he take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? Why did he gift you with faith and repentance? Why is he growing you into his son's likeness? Why is he keeping you right now so that you will not punch your faith? Well, the text tells us right here, because he desires you. That's an amazing thing to contemplate, that the God of the universe desires you, that he wants you. I want us to please stop convincing ourselves that Jesus just tolerates us and that his desire changes based on our performance. You are citizens of the kingdom because Jesus wants you in his kingdom. He called you because he desires you. When verse 14, the text reads that Jesus appointed how many people? A baker's dozen? No, that's 13. He appointed 12. And I don't think the number 12 is accidental. This 12 points back to the 12 tribes of Israel chosen by God in Genesis. God staked his name and authority on these 12 tribes to represent him to the nations. However, like Adam Noah and Abraham, Israel failed to walk in obedience to God. Israel failed to uphold the covenant, causing her to be exiled from the land. 
Now, as we saw last week, the result of Israel's repeated covenant violation was a broken system propagated by self-righteous religious leaders. Well, in this passage, in light of that, Jesus is doing something brand new. He's the true Israel calling a new Israel. This is amazing. Where, G- where Israel failed, Jesus obeyed. Where Israel broke the covenant, Jesus always kept the covenant. And also, just maybe even more amazing, throughout the Old Testament, we see promise after promise that God's people would one day include the Gentiles. And in Mark chapter 3, right here, that time has come. In Jesus calling these 12 apostles, Jesus is laying the foundation for a new Israel that would include both Jews and Gentiles. Please hear me. Salvation is from the Jews, but it does not stop with the Jews. Just as the 12 tribes of Israel served as the foundation for the old covenant people, so now the 12 apostles, they serve as the foundation for the new Israel, this expanded new covenant people. And I want to say, right here, we start to see the shift where God stakes his name, his authority, and his presence, not on Israel, but on the new Israel, on these 12 apostles. Von Roberts says this. He says, Jesus' choice of 12 is no coincidence. It is a deliberate statement. He is calling 12 together as a new Israel, with 12 disciples as the foundation rather than the 12 tribes. I think that's massive for us to understand. I also think it's really important to see Jesus' strategy to expand the kingdom through these 12 men. He called them apostles, meaning they were messengers sent out for a specific purpose. Their commission was really bound up in their title. How will the nations hear about the gospel when Jesus died? Well, Jesus was actually preparing for his death at this very moment. It would be through these 12 men. Now, if you talk to most modern evangelists, I must imagine that they would not agree with Jesus' strategy to reach the nations. I mean, think about what we saw in our last passage. They had presumably thousands of people trying to see Jesus, yet Jesus doesn't stop and hold a revival and say, now come follow me. He just heals people. And even in Mark 4, this is another unbelievable scene that we'll see in a couple weeks But Jesus has so many people around them that he has to get in a boat. And as he gets in a boat, he starts teaching. But what does he teach? He starts teaching in parables, and he only discloses the meaning of the parables to his disciples. So my question is, why doesn't Jesus capitalize on this fame? Why would he not just reach the crowds himself? After this moment in Mark 3, why does Jesus spend so much time with just these apostles? Almost any modern evangelist would conclude that Jesus has failed evangelism 101. Well, Robert Coleman, in writing The Master Plan of Evangelism, helpfully corrects this perspective. He says this, Jesus was not trying to impress the crowd, but to usher in a kingdom. 
This meant that he needed people who could lead multitudes. What good would it have been for his ultimate objective to arouse the masses to follow him if these people had no subsequent supervision or instruction in the way? Jesus had to pour into his disciples before he sent out his disciples. They had to be with him before they were to witness about him. Discipleship is Jesus' strategy of multiplication. And please hear me. This discipleship takes time. Mark defines the first part of this discipleship in verse 14 by saying, he named them apostles to do what? Well, first, to be with them. That kind of seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You are my sent out ones, so stay and learn from me. However, unless the disciples learn from Jesus, they would not be effective for Jesus. As one commentary put it, Disciple is, discipleship is a relationship before a task. Before the go and tell, there must be a come and see. And this discipleship starts by being with Jesus and learning from his words and his ways so that their proclamation will not be based on what they think and feel, but based on what they've seen and heard. Don't we praise God for that, that our New Testament, that our Gospels is not based on what the apostles thought or felt, but on what they've seen and heard. Why were they able to do that? Because they spent time with Jesus. Well, this being with Jesus will give way to Jesus sending out the 12 to speak on behalf of his name and to act in his name. The text says the disciples will be given the task of preaching the gospel and the authority to cast out demons. This is Jesus' strategy to reach the nations. Think about it with me just for a second, because I want us to understand this strategy. Let's just say, hypothetically, I couldn't actually do this, but hypothetically, I said, I will give you either in the first um, window, or the first door, $2 million. That's a lot of money. Or in the second window, you can take a penny that doubles every single day for a month. What would you do? I think most of us would think $2 million, right? But if that penny starts doubling and you get to 31 days, you would have over $10.7 million. Friends, this is Jesus' strategy to reach the nations, evangelizing, edifying, and equipping these apostles to then go out and multiply. They pour into others, who then pours into others, who then pours into others. And by God's grace, because of that very strategy, we in Williamsburg have heard the very gospel. Praise God for that. It might seem slow, but if this is Jesus' master plan, then it must be our plan as well. So I want to give us one application, Christ Fellowship. We must be a church that primarily focuses on people, not programs. We must be a church that primarily focuses on people, not programs. Have you ever been a part of a church that focused more on programs? I think this is a temptation for larger churches. You have so many people coming to your church, which can be a great thing. But when this happens, many of our instincts are to build programs that then will build people. And I want to say programs are not inherently bad. 
Yet the problem with programs is that the responsibility to help people follow Jesus really starts to fall on the program and not the members of the church. Christ Fellowship, one of the most remarkable blessings that we've experienced in the last three years is the blessing of growth. By God's grace, God continues to add to our congregation, and our desire to move into a new building is evidence of that. However, my concern for our church at this stage is that we would lose our passion for people. As we grow, more ministries might pop up, more events might begin to take place, and more opportunities to serve might arise but this could happen at the neglect of us pouring into one another. In the Lord's kindness, I do not think this characterized our church. Please hear me say that, but friends, don't be mistaken. The temptation is there. We must fight against this pull to build programs and not pour into people. Our responsibility is not to the programs. We're not going to go before Jesus and have to give an account for the programs. We're going to go before Jesus and have to give an account for one another. So let's build into each other. Let's never lose that passion for people. Well, to finish our sermon this morning, I want to look at the 12 individuals that Jesus chose to follow him and make a couple concluding comments on the list. Look with me at verses 16 through 19. He appointed the twelve. To Simon he gave the name Peter, and to James the son of Zebedee and his brother John he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the son of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. I want to make three observations from this list of 12 people. Our first observation is all were common men. All were common men. If you look at this list, these men were, in fact, common men. None were attached to the the rabbinic academy. They were not prominent people in the synagogue or connected to the Levitical priesthood. Some of them came from family businesses, but they would have still been middle class at best. As Josh read in our service earlier, the Sanhedrin council observed that they were untrained and uneducated. None of these men probably had any professional training or seminary degree. John MacArthur refers to them as unqualified commoners. I don't think that is a compliment. Now, why did Jesus choose impoverished, uneducated, untrained, and uninfluential men to stake his name and authority on? Well, I think the answer is simple. God's power might be displayed in their weakness so that all the world will know that salvation is only from the Lord. Christ Fellowship, I have to imagine that some of us in this room feel like we too are unqualified commoners. Some of you might say to yourself, you know, I have no formal training. How can I be effective for the kingdom? Well, if I can go back to Acts 4 again, Jesus' disciples, they said that they were uneducated, that they were untrained, but the Sanhedrin council was also amazed at their boldness and wisdom. Why? Well, the text says because they knew that they had been with Jesus. Friends, seminary is great. 
but you do not need seminary to be an effective witness for Jesus. All you need is to be with Jesus. He's the best school because all wisdom and knowledge is found in him. Usefulness for the kingdom comes from spending time with the king of the kingdom. Usefulness for the kingdom comes from spending time with the king of the kingdom. So first observation, all were common men. Second observation, some are unknown to the world. If you notice the list, you will see them categorized in three groups of four. This is with every gospel account. Each group has a leader, and each group moves from greatest intimacy with Jesus to decreasing intimacy. The list starts with the most well-known apostle. In every single gospel, Peter is the top of the list. But as you move through the list, you will need help to name one single fact about Thaddeus or Simon the Zealot. Nevertheless, although some of these apostles were unknown to the world, as the text says, they were known to Jesus. Friends, I want to say this. For almost 99% of us in this room, our faithfulness to Jesus, it will be unknown to Williamsburg. It will be unknown to the Christian culture. It will be unknown to the world. But please hear me, that is okay. It's not so much important to be recognized by the world. It's more important to be recognized by Jesus on the last day when he comes to you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. One commentary beautifully wrote about these unrecognizable names on the list. I love this. He said, their names stand as silent witnesses to the truth that the existence of the church is indebted to laborers of those who, for the most part, remain unknown and unnamed. I love that. The, their, um, the existence of the church is indebted to laborers. And I want to say this. We might not be recognized for our work in this church we might be unnamed. We might not get a plaque on the wall or a star on our shirt. But by God's grace, Jesus knows our works. And Jesus is going to reward us on that last day. So all were common to men. Some are unknown to the world. And finally, one acts as a warning. Look with me at the very final name. Friends, you have to imagine that when these events were taking place, Judah seemed just as faithful as the next apostle. But notice how he's remembered. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. This betrayal right here, as we read it, it acts as a warning to all of us. It acts as a warning that you could start well, but not finish well. That you could seem like you're on fire for a little bit, but then punch your faith. Friends, this phrase, who betrayed him, it is a means of God's grace to warn us. It's a means of God's grace to keep us pressing into Christ until the end. We are all going to be known for something. Something in our lives is going to stick to us as we depart from this earth. What will that be for you? Will it be your boldness like Peter? Will it be your faithfulness like John? Will it be your radical transformation like Levi? Or will it be your betrayal like Judas? Judas acts to us as a warning. So as we conclude, I come back to my two points. 
spectators are fascinated by Jesus, but citizens are called by Jesus. And the implicit question hidden in these two points, who are you? Are you a spectator or are you a follower? Friend, if you see your life right now and you see yourself as a spectator, somebody that's just trying to get to Jesus for how it makes you feel or what you can get, we desperately, desperately want you to repent and believe. It's only the followers that will spend eternity with Christ. This very question will determine how you will spend eternity. We want that to be with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do exalt you. God, we do exalt you for sending your son. We do exalt you for the words that we have on the page that we know what Jesus did and we know what he asked and we know what he demanded to be a part of the kingdom. God, we pray for any of those in here that are not citizens of the kingdom that you would put in their hearts at this very moment a desire to repent and believe. And for those Christians here, Father, I pray that you would cause us to keep pressing into you until the end. Father, I pray that our faithfulness would continue to make you known, even if nobody recognizes it. God, keep us faithful, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.